Welcome to Us and My Life. Love you and I, cause I love you so much. Oh, 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 I just love you. I just like help, help. I just like help. I just like you too. I just like you. I, 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 I just love you. Happy New Year! I love you. Say goodbye. Just going to school, and that's okay. Yum 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 yum. I just love you. Welcome to Roadmap in Your Life. This is Heather Mahoney. It's a Tuesday. And the phone is ringing, and that's the great thing about being on live. You get live telephone calls. You get my partner here who barks all the time, and me, Heather Mahoney. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and we have a great show here for us today. We have Rebecca Eggers. She's going to tell us how she roadmapped her life and how she's doing now with all the great things that she has done over time. And as usual, we don't do a lot of introduction, a lot of preamble stuff. We just get right to it. So, hey, Rebecca, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited that you're here, too. And, you know, as always, um, I believe in the universe always provides and makes things right. So, Thank you so much for jumping in today. It's been a crazy, crazy um, seven, eight days from the last week till now. And it's just not coming in. So thank you so much for being here. So, Rebecca, first of all, tell us a little bit about you before we get into the really good stuff. Uh, okay, well, I, I'm 50 years old. Um, I was a tax lawyer at the top of the U.S. system uh, for many years. Um, I have a master's in tax law from NYU, which is uh, one of the top programs, the top program in the United States, just to give you some sense of where I was uh, in that work. Uh, so I was working at some of the biggest law firms Uh, and one of the larger corporations in the world. When I, you know, kind of like the Buddha, uh, not that I'm enlightened by any stretch of the imagination, but kind of like the Buddha, I was in the palace and I was was realizing that there's a lot missing in the palace. There's a perspective missing. There's um, something deeper that I'm not understanding, you know, so I was sitting at the pinnacle of things. I was a part of making decisions about how money moved internationally. And I had an encounter um, that led me to uh, Chiapas, Mexico, and to uh, the Zapatista rebels here who uh, for many years have been fighting for their um, survival, their uh, right to self-governance. This is an indigenous rebel group. Um, And so that was the beginning of a journey for me that led me from the top of the global financial system to the bottom. Um, 
to a place that resources leave, but magically the people remain uh, largely impoverished, uh, as is the case, you know, in many other places in the world. Uh, so I bring a unique, perhaps, perspective on the matters of the world and on personal development and what it means um, and on the changes that I feel like we're on the cusp of now. Okay. Um, that sounds amazing. So when you said that you had an encounter that led you basically from the U.S. to Mexico, May I inquire, um, or can you be more specific of what that encounter was? You don't have, if you don't want to, you don't yeah. have to. Allow yeah, it. no, I'm I'm happy to share what that encounter was. Um, so this was maybe 15 years ago, 14 years ago, um, that I took a trip to Tulum, and I met a man there who was connected to the rebels and. It was sort of a funny encounter because I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, <laughs> you don't have any weapons. Like, I was just completely ignorant of, you know, uh, of anything, like I said, beyond sort of my limited scope experience uh, of being very educated and being a professional in the United States. And, you know, so we, my Spanish was terrible. He didn't speak any English. But I understood enough to know that some really important answers to the questions that I had about my life rested in Chiapas. So it was a romantic connection. There was moonlight, there was the beach, it was New Year's Eve, the, you know, uh, the stuff of storybooks, um, you know, romance novels, uh, the relationship didn't go anywhere, but the encounter was pivotal in my life um, because I am of Choctaw descent, and I grew up knowing that I was Native, but not really understanding what that meant, and I think that fueled a lot of the questions that I had about my life. It fueled probably the search for answers in Chiapas, uh, which is an indigenous Mayan area, uh, so I'm surrounded by indigenous culture. I'm surrounded by indigenous people. And it just took one time of visiting the rebel territories and one step outside of capitalism for me to have, let's call it an awakening, but that's sort of a shallow way of putting it, to have everything that I understood about myself and the world fall apart kind of instantaneously, mm -hmm. uh, that encapsulates it. So what was those one, two or three questions for you that saying that you were living your life in um, the word I use is pretend that you're, you're one way to yourself or inside your home. And then to the outside world, you're completely different. So what, what was those questions for you that the, I don't want to pretend anymore. I'm not sure it was that conscious. I think what really happened for me, I was in a lot of pain. I didn't belong in that world. I didn't really understand why I didn't belong in that world. I was carrying a lot of trauma. And when I came to Chiapas, 
the first time two things happened um, in the city of San Cristobal de las Casas, which is where I live now. There's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of obvious suffering. And there was something on the inside of me that I could finally see on the outside of me that made sense in some way that I didn't even have words or understanding for. And then when I went to the Zapatista communities, there was a dignity and a, an energy that I could only describe it as crossing that line put me in touch with an energy of dignity that was as, you know, the former leader in some of his, of the Zapatistas and some of his writings says, you know, the dignity is contagious. Um, that contact with dignity, it was just a way of, of carrying themselves, a way of interacting, a whole different experience of the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, everything just kind of started to fall apart right there. And I, I went back to doing what I was doing and, you know, then I would come back here and then I would go back there. And it was sort of interesting because the man took a photo of half of my face and he said, now half of your heart will always be here. And the only way that I could have all of my heart in one place (laughs) was to come here Um, So I eventually left the corporate world and came here, again, not really understanding what this journey would entail um, or who I would become. Yeah. So how long were you traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico before you made Um, the complete switch? From the end of 2009 until the spring of 2011 when I had a complete (laughs) and utter breakdown (laughs) Um, that forced me to begin to really reckon with the traumas that I had been racking up, like circumstances conspired to force me to face those things. And I ended up leaving my job and coming here looking for answers, for help, for healing. Um, So I guess 2009 to 2011, and then I moved here permanently this summer of 2011. Okay. So in that time period from 2009 to 11, you were trying to navigate or to fit in one or the other or to to say, okay, here's the U.S. side. This is where I'm going to be. So what circumstances, because sometimes, you know, there's, there's something that we do call intention, attention, no tension, where we, where maybe consciously, unconsciously, we make a decision and we go forward to trying to, to, um, to get there. We may not know where it is we want to get to, but we want to get someplace. And yeah. we put some attention to it, or unconsciously the universe starts to collide to make it happen, and then it happens. So was that kind of what was happening with you? The universe was conspiring without your knowledge to make it happen? 
Oh, I think it was probably more, at that point, it was more intentional. Like, my work situation, they were going through a restructuring, and it started to feel very similar to uh, some trauma that I had in my early 20s. My mother was murdered, and um, I felt, you know, at that time caught up in, in the system of dealing with the police at a very young age. I felt it felt I felt very much like I didn't have control of my life. And then the situation at work when the restructuring of our department started to happen, I began to feel again like I did not have control of my life. And I I knew that I was I wanted to do something else with my life. I knew that I wanted to make a difference in the world, however vague that might have been. And so I did a cord cutting. Okay. Cut the cord everything that was preventing me from realizing my dreams. And like within 60 days, I lost my job. I had to sell my house. My daughter, who was, you know, 12 or 13 at the time, we sped up an arrangement that we had where she was going to do high school with her father because she didn't want to go to Mexico. And I was, I, I like everything just exploded into, you know, into this adventure starting and I started training as a coach and I became a Reiki master and I studied during those few months that I was still toggling between the United States and here. Uh, I did a, um, a ministry program and became or, an ordained metaphysical minister. And then I you know, went off to Chiapas with this sort of like <laughs> irrational exuberance. I love that term. Um, I think that I think that came from Alan Greenspan, but it's a good term, irrational exuberance about what I was going to accomplish in the world. And what really happened was that, you know, I fell apart um, and started to piece piece back together my my life from so kind of a zero when, point. When you fell apart, was it an emotional thing? Was it physical or was it a combination of both and in that breakdown of getting back to your core before you can rebuild what were some of those things that were happening that was it financial emotional relationship and and I heard the real sadness and trauma of your mom dying that must have been you know there's the loss of the traditional way of someone dying, but to have a sudden catastrophic loss of a parent. Oh my, I can't imagine that. Um, it was, I think it was that I had undiagnosed PTSD until that point, And I had been kind of hobbling along in life. You know, my mother was killed when I was 24. I had my daughter when I was 26. My father died when I was 22. So, you know, I went through all of that without a parent. I went through all of that. You know, I had just graduated from law school. So I went straight from that to having a child to raise and being the breadwinner for my family. And I just, I was never okay again after the murder happened. I, you know, I was really holding it together on a sort of a, 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 force of will basis anyway, and I had reached the end of my capacity to do that when I started to explore things that then led me ultimately to this encounter in Tulum. Uh, 
I think also that my capacity to hold it together, you know, I did not, I did not understand at the time what it meant to be, what it meant for my mother. My mother was the one who was of Choctaw descent and her, her father was Choctaw and her mother was also native. So both of them, you know, white passing natives who then had my mother. And so I didn't really understand this like lack of belonging that I felt. And that was also building to a crescendo. So I think all of those things were in play. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I, I don't think any journey like this is really complete. Like it's really interesting because everything has come full circle and like all of a sudden they've arrested a suspect in my mother's murder after 26 years. And the woman who raised me when I was a child and her husband, you know, she they worked, worked for my mother and raised me when I was a child. Um, her and her husband died a few months ago. Um, the place where we live now, I'm married to a local man here. The place where we live has exploded in all kinds of violence in the past few months. Like if you checked the news, you would find that, you know, there's a great deal of, uh, of violence exploding in southern Mexico right now. So it's not like it's not like the journey is complete. It's like meeting the journey on different levels as a different version of yourself and understanding it more deeply and ultimately, you know, letting go of more pieces of it. So what is the journey of yourself look for? look like because you know I have to say for me my journey is very different and I I would be petrified living where you are and that's just me of saying that and being authentic and honest but when did the pieces of your puzzle start to fall into place to say oh, this is who I am. You know, with all my temples and work, this is who I am, where I am, and I'm going to take all of those experiences of yesterday, good, bad, or indifferent, and they've now made me who I am today, and I like that, or like who I am today. When did that start to happen? I don't think there was, I don't think there was like a moment. I think it probably started when I came here to begin with. I think that was a, a, a claiming of self that I didn't even have a, have a way to fully understand. Um, I think I really began to understand the significance of being, you know, and being of native descent and, you know, also being of Irish descent and all of those things started to really make sense for me uh, maybe a few years before the pandemic and then during the pandemic they really it really started to come together um, with all of the things that were happening in the world and all of the things that you know I was noticing wow you know we're having a very radically different pandemic than, than the people in the United States are having um, you know so I think fully accepting myself as being mixed race and fully accepting the 
the things that have happened in my life and the mistakes that I've made has been, and, and the triumphs that I've had has been an ongoing experience uh, through many different chapters. Uh, I think maybe what you're asking is when did I come to a place where I could really value myself in the midst of all of this? And I think the answer to that is when I realized that questions of value are really a red herring. Like they take us on a journey of trying to feel better about ourselves or trying to validate ourselves or find something to validate ourselves when that value is innate. And if we come to the place of holding that that value is innate, then a whole other universe of questions opens up about how the world is and why it is the way it is. So when did that moment arise for you? I guess about five or six years ago, I created something called the key. And the key is the very simple statement that your value is established. It is never in dispute. And that opened up an inquiry of who, what, and why, you know, devalues people uh, at a much deeper level than I had ever considered it before. So I think it's been an ongoing journey of walking with the key in my hand. Um, and confronting questions in my life and decisions in my life, holding the idea that my value is established and failing sometimes to know that, you know, that that's probably a good segue to what I actually thought we were going to talk about tonight. Um, which oh, well, was, yeah. I think we're going to talk about. Uh, yeah, that, that I had said I'd made a big, you know, big mistake recently that cost me uh, a great deal um, and I think that that was a failure to hold the key uh, that ultimately laid the foundation for me to make a really life and death perilous error that has left, you know, me and my husband really struggling. Um, so we're, face, you know, facing obstacles again, recovering the key, recovering the way forward. Because um, when you originally asked for a guest, I said, oh, yeah, I made a huge screw-up. I wiped out big time, and I, I made three big mistakes that, that cost me pretty much everything, and that's what I thought we were going to talk about. So, um, you know, really failing to huh? – So what were the mistakes that you made that cost you everything? Um, well, I guess I should say that there's there's something that's really important to me in this world, and that is changing who – whose ideas come into the conversation, uh, whose talent and genius and ability and work leads them to wealth. So really changing the access and changing uh, the way that that access rewards people is something that's really important to me. And that's a background to what happened, you know, what, the mistakes that I made, which is that I, I took on a, a, a consulting role doing some coaching for an organization that I believed had that same mission. And because I wasn't holding the key effectively, I wasn't holding my value as established, I still had some, some places that I was looking for validation as an underlying issue. And also I had this, this strong desire to be a part of something that really would have a big impact it led me down the road of making three big mistakes. 
One was that I began to invest my time, my energy, my intangible resources into the project as though it was my own. Um, and I was asked to do that, and I, I believed that, it would, that I would eventually have a bigger stake. That I shut down my general coaching practice to focus on the needs of one client. And that I then advanced my services and delayed my fees for the first time ever in either my legal career or my coaching practice. And so those three mistakes meant that when it came time to ask the hard questions about the direction we were headed, I was a little bit out over my skis, so to speak, as I say. I, I didn't hold the power in the room and the, the other, you know, we're talking now about institutional power that uh, someone has when they're paying you and when they then owe you money. So I had to ask the hard questions and face the consequences of not holding power in that moment and of having allowed, you know, that some lingering need for validation um, to draw me into um, feeling like I belonged finally, feeling like I was a part of something that was bigger than just me and maybe individual clients, and to investing in that reality in ways that made it both hard for me to do my work with integrity and also left me and my husband ultimately penniless as we never got paid for those services. And for us, it was a great deal. It was a great deal of money. Um, so, you, so it left you forgot, from nothing. You forgot the attorney rule of getting the retainer up front? Yes. <laughs> More like, more like I thought about it, and I thought, oh, but we family. <laughs> you know, it was this real belief that we were doing something together that was around this meaningful vision, and it fell apart. So I think... So I, so I was going to ask on that question. So the little inner ear or the little gut feeling that was saying something along the way that you ignored. Because I know when we <laughs> go into these situations, there's always a little voice that's talking to us, and we ignore them. So how did you ignore that voice? Okay. Well, this is, this is I think, going to be a huge core lesson for anyone who's listening to avoid this mistake. When I was 14, I was groomed by an older man and ultimately raped. And that became a core trauma in my life that accounted for a great deal of other um, missteps and traumas that I encountered, again, a second time, you know, being sexually abused, raped, beaten, you know, drug addiction that came out of that moment. And when I started to do this work, I felt that seduction energy in the room, that grooming energy. And I'm not going to say that it came from the organization because trauma has a funny way of having things also come from you, like that you even do it, you even deceive yourself. 
And I thought to myself, oh, okay, I feel this seduction energy in the room. I know what to do. No matter what happens, I'll keep my knickers on and I'll have strong boundaries <laughs> around sexuality because I associated that sensation of seduction with sexual, sexual abuse and grooming. But what was really at stake is that I wrote a book in 2013 and it felt to me like the book was coming alive in my life finally and that you know I had met some people who were playing the character, the passionate warrior from my book who uh, you know, who, whose work in the world is to transition from systems of domination to, uh, you know, things that support planetary and human thriving. And I felt like, okay, after years of individual coaching, I'm finally now going to do this at the next level. And so when I felt that feeling, I addressed it in the way I knew to address it. And I failed to appreciate, like something just kept feeling wrong about that sensation, <laughs> but I couldn't put my finger on it until it was too late. And the damage had already been done to my life by the way that I made those three key decisions in the midst of that sensation of seduction without really knowing, without being able to identify how it was going to play out. And the end result of that was feeling like a complete imposter. How could I, with 12 years of, you know, at the time, 11 years of experience working with trauma, how could I, the author of the book about how domination systems work, how could I, as someone who saw and felt that energy in the room, how could I have done this? <laughs> and ultimately, I think I came to the place where I, I can say, First of all, we have to acknowledge when we're in a system that isn't built for us and isn't going to let us have a meaningful role, no matter what the lip service is, <laughs> that's one thing. And the other is that we have to not consider ourselves to be imposters because we fail in an arena that's bigger than the one we were in before or that's one level up for us when we're in there getting our, you know, when we're, we're in there, we have to build failure in. So having the key back in my hand, my value is established. It's never in dispute. This thing cannot throw my value into dispute. So holding that, what is true? And what is true is that we must build in failure as a feature when we are reaching. And that the mistakes that I made last year were absolutely necessary. They were, they were failures that prepared me to enter that arena in a whole new way without that need for validation because that has been ripped out of my heart <laughs> without that, that willing, you know, that, that blind spot to how a seduction wound can play out. I mean, the funny thing is I teach about seduction wounds. <laughs> so like I, I knew everything intellectually, but to have that ripped out to have that, these were codependent choices that I made. To have that codependency that flowed from the seduction wound and the grooming and all of these things ripped out. People thought I was going to die when this whole thing fell apart. And, and, and um, I, I, 
that, but I have two questions, and and one is, and correct me when I'm wrong. I I keep hearing the word I in a lot of it. So my question is for you is. And I wrote a book about my divorce and my remap of my life. And the one thing I took out of that was that I needed a partner, not necessarily a, a, a male or a husband or, or, or that type, but I needed a partner for someone to see behind me because I can't see what's behind me. Yes, and, and I had that. I had that, and I I have not. I, I'm I'm wanting to protect people's privacy, but I did have someone on my team who did stand behind me, who did say, "I this doesn't feel right." You know, um, she saw it. My husband was also on the team. Um, the thing the thing that is is you need to know is that my husband is indigenous and. The, the the other woman on my team is black and she saw it and tried to intervene and help me to see and I I still had a blind spot and neither of us could figure out exactly what my blind spot was and then my husband said to me the other day yeah I knew you were making some sort of a of a naive choice and I thought do I do I try to stop her or do I let her go as far as she can go and have this experience and he okay. decided to let me go as far as I can so, go without the experience. So I have a question, innocent as it is. Do you know your triggers? I do know my triggers. I think this was what you might call, uh, there, there was the trigger of the grooming and there was the failure to identify that that, that, that trigger could play out in an arena that wasn't sexual. And the reason why I asked if you knew your triggers is because um, I still struggle with this as well. And when there are, when I know my triggers are being pulled, I also have on the flip side, what's supposed to happen? What am I supposed to do when the triggers happen? Because sometimes, as you as you just said, we're unconscious, and the sensation we get, whether good or bad, at the end of the day, we tend to go with them being good, even though they're not the serves us best. So when I know my trigger is being pulled, I tend to go to the the answers are the key, as you say in your hand and this is how the door gets unlocked and this is what I'm supposed to do because the trigger is this I may not like it but the trigger is here and this is what I need to do so do you have that discipline to say okay here's my trigger here's the key I need to use it or now you do I mean, I think that I, I think that in real time, I believed that I was doing those things. And I think what I'm trying to say is that as we advance to another level, sometimes things play out in a way that we can identify and not identify. 
And so I think if I were, you know, I think that that um, it's not so much like I'm kind of I'm puzzling through this a little bit in real time. It's not so much that that I have to say these triggers are happening and this is what I need to do. I think what what would have saved me and what what could save anyone in this situation is that we're not really relying on the sensation of our triggers. We have principles in place. And the problem that I have uh, that I, the, 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 the responsibility that I have to take is that all three of the mistakes that I made were principles that I had otherwise previously fully and completely adhered to or as to the best of my ability adhered to, and I threw all three of them out. So the first principle is that you do not invest in someone else's transformation or in an organization's transformation uh, more than than the organization does or as though it is your own. You don't have a single point of failure when everything is at stake for you. And you don't advance your services. So I violated core principles because I failed to apply them at the next level up and because I felt the trigger and thought I was dealing effectively with it when really the discipline isn't just to have that key about my value in my hand, but that attached to that key is the application of principles. Principles will save us every time <laughs> from, you know, if, if I could have realized that, oh, okay, I'm, I'm violating these principles, but I didn't actually realize in real time that I was violating the principles for a variety of reasons. So it wasn't that I lacked discipline. It was that I entered a field that was more complex, and that's saying a lot, (laughs) Um, than I was equipped to deal with in terms of being waylaid by my own hunger to see a dream fulfilled. And I just failed. I failed. And you know what? That's that's what I want to say. That's what I'm saying. Build failure in as a feature into your life because I had I not gone through this failure and made these mistakes and lapses in principles because I was I couldn't go forward with the thing that means so much to me which is making this key change in every way I can about who has access and whose ideas come in and who whose ideas and and artistry and what have you, and hard work attached to wealth. I can't work in that realm if I have these things operating in the background. And believe you me, <laughs> I'm clear about it now. <laughs> so how are you using those lessons, um, those three lessons that you ignored to remap your life today? To reroute in a different direction that best serves you and your family. Uh, well, with the key intact, 
um, with a clear understanding of the principles that must always apply. Um, and with my dream recovered, right, for a while it cost me my dream because it was so painful to have made these three mistakes. Uh, so with my dream intact, you know, I venture forward again. I, re, I restructure. I'm in the process of working on a rebrand. I'm in a process of uh, restructuring what I want to offer to the world and to not let this push me to shrink. I want to work with people who are on the cutting edge of transforming our world, the inventors, the innovators, the future makers, uh, to, to see real impact in the way we do things on planet Earth. And I'm not giving up that dream. The course that we have to chart forward from here is not an easy one because the jeopardy is still there. You know, we've been sort of uh, getting by on a hope and a prayer for a few months now because literally we went from having income to having, you know, no income from my business overnight. Just keeping on, keeping on. I, well, I love the idea that you keep, you're keeping on, keeping on. So, and I love the idea that you've restructured and, and it sounds like you've identified your client, your target client now for those. So tell me more about that new client who's going to, who you have rerouted per se. Okay, these are the people, the inventors, those people on the cutting edge. Who's that ideal person, that ideal company, whoever that is? Who is he? What do they do? What does he look like? I think the ideal people or organizations are ones that want to face head-on the questions of how we have an impact in this world that takes into consideration the different stakeholders that are, that are uh, important that are that are going to be affected the the perspectives I call it alchemy 360 where you know my husband does oracle cards and he says one of his oracle cards is spend time with uh, people not on your level and he means up down and around he means you must be in contact with the full picture of the world if you want to have an impact mm-hmm. and I take that very much to heart uh, so, so the ideal people are people who are willing to confront themselves in the full context of the world with all of the stakeholders having, you know, input into how things work, to asking questions, being curious, looking at things from every direction. And honestly, I think a rigorous um, requirement that especially people from the United States and especially people who are great beneficiaries of the privilege that is given to based on on gender and based on racial identity confront honestly openly and rigorously their position and their impact on people okay and what else 
gosh. Um, I think that they, you know, that anyone who wants to make this kind of change that I'm talking about, they have to be a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, on this on the side of the hero mentality, like the hero's journey. But they, but they have to be ordinary. It's not just having like a massively transformative purpose, as a lot of people speak of. Like, I want to put someone, you know, on Mars and have them live there. Maybe, you know, the daily transformative purpose comes in that we probably should figure out how to live on Earth and take care of Earth before we put someone on Mars. So it's like, you know, having those huge hero ambitions to really make a change in the world, but having the humility to come down to Earth and work on the daily transformative purpose get your, you know, get yourself right, get your situation right, as well as working on your transformative purpose. And I don't think they're separate. I think there's interplay between the two. But I don't want someone who has a hero complex who needs to be the, the only person whose perspective or brilliance matters. Okay. And I hear all that, but, and I keep asking, and what else? And what I'm driving at is when I say, and what else, is I'm looking for you to answer, how do they respect you? How oh. do they respect you? Because that's, okay. that's critical. And if you don't well, identify that client... I think I'm answering that with the word rigor, like rigorous self-confrontation. And you, you know, you you respect me by going into that confrontation together. And there, you know, the respect that, well, the first respect I get is I get paid up front. (laughs) Um, And that they respect me by wanting that transformation for themselves, for their organization, more more than or as much as I want it so that I'm not underwriting that transformation with my desire being stronger. It's full investment, full investment uh, that respects me because I have right. a lot of, of valuable experience that, that could take any organization or any person through the inner work necessary to ensure they do the outer work with integrity. And some of that work is failure. I know, and, and I say that because um, this is the lesson I learned for me. When I didn't write it down, I didn't pay attention to it. And when I didn't pay attention to it, I kind of missed it when they showed up and they weren't what I said they need to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm in the process of writing it down now. I'm actually articulating uh, the different pieces on my website kind of in real time. Like there's an accordion menu that folds into different pieces of the journey. So I'm definitely Mm -hmm. in the process of articulating that. And thank you for saying that. Do you create an avatar, a 3D person of your ideal client? And all of the characteristics and traits that you want that organization, that person to be, that decision maker, that inventor, that person on the cutting edge, 
everything that you want them to be um, that goes on that paper because then it becomes like a 3D image or tangible of this person you could touch, feel, see, and everything rather than them just being a flat paper. And so when I did that for my ideal client, oh, my goodness, did they show up. Yeah, I mean, I did write a whole book about it. It's sort of funny that uh, for, like, all of these years I kept saying, gosh, like, I just can't seem to describe my ideal client. Um, No idea. It's like like trying to stick jello to the wall. Who is my ideal client? And then one day I was like, you wrote a whole book about who your ideal client is. I think I just wasn't ready to step into that. And I think even before the lessons of last year, I wasn't ready to step into it, but I'm ready to step into it now. And I'm prepared for what, what will come with that and excited to do it. So I think that was like, I don't know, 10 years of self-deception that I didn't know who my ideal client was. And, you know, it's right. very clear your client is. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, and they keep evolving and they evolve every moment, every day. And, and you get it and, and they show up, believe me, they show up. And, and it's, it's funny because they will never, ever take advantage of you the way the previous um, client you described took advantage of you. Because well, I think, I think actually I have to hang on. Let me let me differ with you slightly there. Okay. I think that I did I did lose, but can I really say that the client took advantage of me because it was my job? To manage, to manage these three principles. And I think it's really important for me and for anyone listening that we not paint ourselves automatically with the brush of victimization because what happened to me was that I had victimization that was clear victimization from my childhood that played out in an unpredictable way. And because of that, I failed to apply those principles and that's not just me being brave and, and and I'm not denying that there were power dynamics here and I'm not denying, you know, there was part of this had to do with wanting to have a big impact in a system. You know, some of this has to, had to do with wanting my daddy's approval, still wanting to, you know, get a seat at that table, um, in, not necessarily in the organization, but in the system itself and having that ripped out of me. So, I, you know, my my colleague who was working with me, I said to her the other day, I really got my, you know, ASS handed to me. And she said, no, you handed it to yourself because it had to happen. And I think it really did have to happen. And I think my husband was right. He saw that I was making naive decisions. And he also saw the benefit to me as someone who had blind spots associated with you know, having grown up with a certain amount of privilege, having the native heritage, but not fully understanding it. And he was brave enough and bold enough to let me crash and burn and to be there after it was over in the, in the shattering of my dream and to face the, the hard moments that we're having now. 
I really, I really applaud his bravery for allowing me to have that moment, knowing that it was potentially going to play out in a way that was devastating for us. It was incredibly powerful decision on his part to let me go ahead and go through what I went through. So I'm not sorry for the experience. I'm sorry for the difficulties that we're still facing now because of my mistakes. But I was the one who was brought in to do coaching, and I failed to apply those three principles, specifically because I failed to appreciate the way that earlier trauma was playing out unpredictably, and that is on me, regardless of the systemic factors, the power dynamics, and all of that. The failure to apply these three principles more than anything else led to the outcome in the full context of all the power dynamics I know were in the room. Had I applied these principles, I would have gone down a different path. And that's my responsibility. Well, I think today you're going down a different path, so congratulations to you. And it sounds amazing that you have rerouted. You had to pause somehow, some way. And you rerouted yourself and you're making changes and that's all we can do is to, you know, um, you ever do MapQuest and as yeah. soon as you pass your exit, it's, it reroutes you to say, okay, let's get you back to where you need to be. And yes. you're, you're now getting back to where you need to be in order to move forward. And, and that's a good thing. And you're resilient, so congratulations for being resilient and being persistent in moving forward as you go through it. So, uh, you know, we're reaching the end of this, and it was a quick one hour. Can you believe it? And so, as I said to you, there are no pre-formatted questions. The only question question I ask is, what have you learned through this process and how will it take you forward? Yeah, I think it's this, it's this thing that I previously said, really, that you can't, I suffered for a long period of time after this initially started to break down um, with the feeling of being an imposter because I, because I failed so spectacularly at things that I had studied and worked with and pra- had practical experience in. And I think it's that you cannot consider yourself an imposter when you fail in an arena that's a level up for you. And you also can't really consider yourself to be an imposter when you're trying to have an impact in a system that isn't made for you. I think that's an important thing to, to put on the line that anyone who, you know anyone who's not of a certain degree of privilege in the current system is functioning in a system that wasn't made for us and we have to keep that in mind and i do have that in mind as i take responsibility so when you get in the arena under those conditions either of those conditions Go ahead and go ahead and prepare for failure. Build it in. <laughs> it's okay to fail, and it doesn't change your value. It makes you That's more right. valuable as a consultant to have failed. 
actually. As a human, it doesn't make any difference in your value. But in terms of the value of your services and the things that you bring to the table, building in failure as, as part of your pathway makes you even more valuable as a service provider. That's true. And Rebecca, you mentioned that you wrote a book. So tell us where the title of the book again and where can we get a copy? Uh, it's called Coming Alive, and it has an exclamation mark. Um, it's on Amazon. Usually the best way to find it is just with my name, um, which is spelled a little funny. My name is R-E-B-E-C-K-A, Eggers, E-G-G-E-R-S. So you got to get the K right. Um, so that's where you can find the book. Uh, soon there'll be a link to it back up on my website, but I'm just reconstructing everything right now. You can also follow me on Facebook because I post excerpts from the book a lot, so you can you can get a hold of the book that way. Okay, and what's your Facebook um, name? Uh, just my name. Again, you got to get that K. <laughs> so with a K, right? And we can R find that K, K on Facebook book or um, coming alive exclamation point Rebecca Eggers at Amazon is um, any other way to get in touch with you uh, yeah an even easier way <laughs> is just my website which there's no spelling issues with at all the passion path dot vision the passion path dot vision Yes. Right. You can you can find me there. Okay. And Rebecca, it's been such a pleasure. Um, my little business partner Henley said thank you for being here tonight. He's been so good. <laughs> Tell him I said woof woof. Um, and I want to thank you. That was by no stretch of the imagination a softball interview. <laughs> You really pushed me to uh, give up the goods for the audience there, um, and I appreciate I appreciate that. I, I didn't want to, you know, I don't like I don't like doing anything that's sort of like softball or surface. So thank you for pushing. Oh no problem, and I thank you for being such an open book and and helping me through it and answering my questions. And like I said, anything is off limits, and you tell me where to go, and I just follow it. You know. And, of course, you can always find me here on the same bad channel every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And we will roadmap your life with another fabulous, amazing guest who will talk about how she roadmapped her life after a crushing end of a relationship. It may be. It could be a career stop or start. It could be a financial crisis that they're going through or the loss of a loved one. And Rebecca went through just about all of them. And she showed us how she remapped her life, rerouted it, start over, and she's doing really well today. And she, I'm going to say, happily married too and have a, an amazing supportive spouse. And we all desire that in whatever it is that we do. So peace and progress to you. Have a great one, and then we will see you here next week. Have a good one.